0: Getting to know you, getting to know all
1: about you, getting to like
2: you, getting to hope you like me. Hello and welcome to Borked, the podcast by Geeks for Geeks. I'm your host, David Eagle, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Jay. What's up? And Rev.
1: Good evening. Or good morning. Or good night. Or good afternoon. It doesn't matter. When you're listening to it, we wish you the appropriate, the hour appropriate greeting. Correct. Very good. This is episode two of Borked. We thank you for joining us.
2: We hope that you will enjoy this episode. We were going to do brief introductions, but it turns out that the first question that I have for my cohorts is going to function as a way of not just introduction, but hopefully of introducing you to who we are as geeks, how we have come to be what we are, and just give you a little information about us. We're going to jump right in with question one. The overall question, the meta question, is what makes you a geek? And I have some sub-questions here. We're going to start at the beginning, how you became a geek, what in your childhood affected you and sort of pointed you in that direction. And then we're going to move on to modern-day geeky things, why you define yourself that way, all kinds of stuff. So let's just jump right in there. I want to start with Jay, and I'm going to ask, what was it that started you on the path of geekiness when you were a kid? was there one specific thing that you really loved and latched onto that guided you into
1: the geeky subculture? Well, I had red hair, glasses, and braces, so that was pretty much the end. No, they, <laughs> it's all true, but that may, not, may or may not have made a, a large contribution to why I turned into geek guy. <laughs> I associate geeks in general with, I don't know, comic books and gaming. I don't know why. Those are the two kind of things I associated with computers, comic books, gaming, that sort of trifecta, and um, I had a lot of early kind of gaming experiences. I remember when I was very young, say under the age of 10 probably, is when my family had their first PC, and uh we also had, you know, an NES. My cousin, who was much older than I was, uh, he had a console. I remember playing games on that. It was a pre-NES console, though, so I was trying to find out which one it was, whether it was like the Famicom or you know, Atari or whatnot. I could not figure that out. But I would say that probably the first game I have a really distinct memory of, there were like three of them, but I was only able to locate one on the internet. It was called Codename Iceman. And uh, you should check the wiki on that because it's way stupider than I remember it, which is how all memories are. And yeah, that game was very interesting. It was kind of like just basically a graphical adventure. So that's my earliest like gaming memory. I've always kind of been into comics uh, to some degree or another. I have a bunch that I had Purchased when I was younger. I still have them in a box. And also, my dad was always really into board games and strategy games. So I think that probably played, played a really large role in how I became a geek. Yeah, your dad is a hes a terrifying
2: board oh. gamer. He, um. Except when he's yeah. going to Berlin. We, we did. He, te- <laughs> he tears it up on the regular. Yeah. The X and
1: Allies, so those- I've only ever beat him twice. I've probably played him about a hundred times more than that. And, uh, yeah, oh. i beat him twice. One of those times is me and Rev. We. We were allies, and we were just like, you know, F it, let's go for Berlin, and we just went in there, totally destroyed him. It was great. It was all a dice, though. Kevin Matt was rolling for my dad, and just was rolling all sixes, which, if you know anything, about and Eisenhower I remember started. that. I was there. <laughs> I thought my dad was going to punch Kevin in the
2: face. I thought he was, too. He was doing that thing he does where he kind of, like, rubs his hands over uh-huh. his face.
1: Yeah. It's like the, my dad equivalent of the JLPFB.
2: Yeah, pretty much. It's a sure sign of frustration.
0: Real quick to uh, give John a little bit of cred. Iceman is made by Sierra, the god uh-huh. of, like, all adventure. And yes. uh, this is on the, for anyone who's played the original Space Quest or Police Quest, both excellent games. King's this Quest. is King's Quest. This is, like, one of the offshoots that never went anywhere.
1: But it was great.
0: I'm sure it was. Yep. All I'm seeing here is nuclear-powered submarine, one-night stand, Tahiti. Cold war. It has to uh-huh. be awesome.
1: No, the best part was going into the bar. And if you look on the Wikipedia side, there's a there's actually a screenshot from the game and it's of the bar. And I remember some walking the bar and your guys wearing these shorts, which are ridiculously like eighties shorts. And uh I remember you could like hit on the chick and then dance with her, right? And then you would go out of the room, I think is how it went. And I never understood it until now and I'm like, wow, that's uh you were obviously. <laughs> I'm like nine probably. <laughs> this guy's obviously, you know, finding a woman in a bar, and then going and engaging in some adult behavior, so to speak. So, yeah, no, it's kind of neat. I wish I could find this online for freeware, because I would play it again and probably beat it. Because it it says the game is unwinnable on this Wikipedia thing, which I distinctly remember.
0: A few months ago, a website came out that had the uh, Space Quest and Police Quest in online form. And the interesting thing was that everyone could play in the same kind of Police Quest, Space Quest game. So you went into the bar or as a Leisure Suit Larry, and you oh. had like 50 Leisure Suit Larrys standing there talking. And it was serious? All, yeah, it was, it was like a multiplayer Sierra adventure game.
1: <laughs> oh, at the bottom of this article it says reception. The submarine simulator later was widely criticized as frustrating and may have been a leading reason for the game's poor sales. That is true. I never got past the first time using the submarine. Never. I remember that distinctly. I just went in the bar and danced with the chick and then walked out of the room. That was the game for me.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's it. Speaking of Sierra, do you guys remember, do either of you remember, what was it called? Gabriel Knight, I think is Excellent game. All right. I'm glad I'm not the only one. That game was absolutely amazing. But before we get ahead of ourselves with digging into games, let's take it over to Rev. What started you down the path to
0: geekiness? I've thought long and hard about this. And I want to say that John kind of touched on, he was like, oh, my red hair and... I was just sort of born into it. And I think a lot of us are born into it. I think some people kind of find their way, but a lot of us are are just born into this geeky, (laughs) I don't know, it's just how we are. Like you're you're kind of genetically predisposed. Yeah, exactly. But I think one of the solid memories I had was there was this Count of Monte Cristo comic book. And I must have had it since I was like... 6 or 7 and that right there is like one of the things that have spurned me to pick up comic books spurned and you. other <laughs> other books uh just because I have that like childhood awesome remember it sort of like John had with the game of this sp- oh, just great comic book so it was when i was 6 or 7 oh. um and so every time i go to pick up a comic book i literally yeah. think about that original Count of Monte Cristo comic book novel. Count of Monte Cristo, it really is the kind of node in which I developed a lot of my geek likings, I think. There may be more, but that's definitely in my memory as one of the uh, significant points in my childhood. For me, I started with... The Dragon Riders of
2: Pern, I think. That was probably the first really geeky thing reading a fantasy book. And from there I read more fantasy books and there were games at the same time. And I, I specifically remember once my mom bought at Costco they had I think it was five dollars for this package of something like twenty comic books for five bucks. And they were all terrible. <laughs> I mean, none of none of them were good. It was like the Green Lantern, back when the Green Lantern wasn't an interesting story at all and something about some archer it was like all the not even b characters it was like c characters characters that uh, like tangentially interacted with the b level characters but i took those to my elementary school and through the economics of you know sixth grade i was able to trade those with other students and i was able to get eventually i ended up with this trade paperback wolverine
1: book which first was awesome edition. it's now worth 100 million dollars and yeah <laughs> definitely
2: not but it was wolverine And it was absolutely amazing. I was able to get my hands on that. I traded like five of my $1 comics for that. Good deal. Yeah, it really was. I went to school with like 10 comics. I came home with like five, but they were all primo. So that was kind of elementary school was that. And then through junior high and high school, I just, I remember riding my bike to the library just about every day and picking out a new fantasy book and like starting on it or finishing one and returning it or whatever. So for me, novels were huge. Fantasy, like sci-fi, I read Foundation the whole trilogy by Asimov in that period. And all that stuff is what got me into playing stuff like Ultima Online, stuff like MMORPGs and RPGs. I, I distinctly remember one called Torn's Passage by Sierra, incidentally.
1: Shut up. No way.
2: Yeah, Yahweh. <laughs>
0: Which was an awesome game. Stuff like Torrens Passage, Loom. Oh my lord, you just... Oh my gosh. I have to play that game again. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Loom, Loom is one of the the best games of all time so
2: it was really cool to go through that stuff and to be reading the books and playing the games at the same time during that time when you just feel like maybe not anything is possible necessarily but but you're still almost young enough to believe that anything is possible You're
1: captivated by imagination You could say that I just did In marketing, I guess you
2: <laughs> could and and did say that my next question was not necessarily what is your first gaming memory, but in general, what's your first geeky memory? I don't know what mine is, so I'm going to make Rev
0: answer that one. Is it The Count of Monte
2: Cristo, the comic, like getting into that and really enjoying it, or was there something before that?
0: You know, I didn't really think of Count of Monte Cristo as geeky at the time. At the time, I knew it was like, I'm actually looking at it now. I guess there's an illustrated classic edition of all these um, old stories that they moved into comic books. It's Dumas, well, right? Yes, Alexandre Dumas. So I didn't really feel that that was geeky, but I distinctly feel that it has drawn me into other geeky parts. The part that I felt that really made me feel, okay, I'm a geek, I can accept all of these things that are uh, geeky, was um, when I played for the first time Star Wars uh, D6 role-playing game Uh, With my buddy, just when I was maybe 11 or 10, that really kind of, when I went home after (laughs) playing that, I'm like, okay, I guess I won't (laughs) be playing football in high school. (laughs) Well,
2: I I had some time to think about it while you were talking about yours, and I think for me, you kind of touched on the fact that. You could do, you could read comic books or you could play video games without necessarily feeling like you were a geek. I did play video games for quite a while and I thought, you know, kind of, I guess frat boys prove that. (laughs) Frat boys loves them some Halo. Hey. No offense to any frat boys that might be listening, I love but I think it's, in, in general, frat boys loves them some Halo, but that <laughs> that doesn't make them geeks. For me, the first experience that I had that made me not only feel like I was a geek, but also feel like that was something that should be aspired to, was talking to a friend of mine on MIRC, and I was in a chat channel, and I don't even remember the guy's name, I don't remember his handle, because you had a handle, you had to have a handle, you know, if you've seen Hackers, you know that you're nothing without a handle (laughs) i don't remember his handle or any of that stuff all i remember is we were having this conversation about hacking and like what hacking was and what it meant to to gain unauthorized access into a system and i was asking him the basic question how does a hacker break into your system how is it possible how is it done so i was asking him this because i was enamored with this concept of hacking and uh His response was, well, you know, all the hackers use the Linux operating system, and there are these scripts that can be run on Linux and all this. So I went to CheapBytes.com, and I bought, for 99 cents plus shipping, I bought a Linux CD. It was uh, Red Hat. The release was called Manhattan. I think it was Red Hat 6. I don't know. And when it got there, I installed it on my computer. And then I turned it into a router and installed IP Chains, which is a firewall on it. All this cool stuff. But anyway... I made by hand a crossover cable by cutting into an Ethernet cable and splicing the... <laughs> wow. Splicing the cable, yeah. So that was my first... That was the first time that I really felt like...
0: Not only like...
2: your stripes. Like I was a geek. Yeah, like I was a geek. I identified with geekiness, but also that it was something that was cool. Maybe not cool to a lot of people. Maybe not really cool to anyone, but, but cool to me. And that was good enough. Uh, and from there, I just really kind of delved into computers more and got more into geeky things and dealt more with that community.
1: But that's how it started for me. Jay, did you want to revise what you had talked about? or? Well, real quick, I mean, like I said, my first game thing was Man, but I remember my first Nerd Rage moment. That's got to be worth something, right? Definitely. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, hanging with my cousins and we were playing Scorched Earth, which if you don't know what that is. Yes, I've played that. Scorched Earth is red. I really wanted to be the green tank. And my cousin picked the green tank. So I wasn't going to play, but that might have just been being juvenile, not actually nerd rage. I mean, I I definitely read a lot, too. You are talking about that. Dave actually reminded me about the Lloyd Alexander books, the uh, the Horned King. The
2: Chronicles of Prydain. Yes.
1: Oh, man. You actually
2: stole one of our later questions is things, things that you recommend from your childhood, and that is, I have the wiki open right now.
1: Well, I recommend it because that was, I think that's how I really started I don't know. I think we might be able to examine a common link here, guys, about reading at a young age. That might definitely be a lot to that because I, I definitely read more than any other child in my family.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I can attest. I uh, go out on a limb here and tell everybody that I uh, I know Dave. You haven't come out of the closet, but <clears throat> I was homeschooled uh, in junior high, and literally, I maybe ten percent of my time was spent actually doing my homework. And the other 90% of the time, I was lucky enough to be within very close walking distance of a library. And at the age of, I mean, how old are you in junior high? 11-ish when 11 you start. To 13. Yeah, 11 to 13. Uh-huh. I was, my birthday's late, so I was 11. All of the books in the young adult didn't interest me because they were all the stupid, Baby scary Sitter's books. Club. Yeah, Babysitter's Club. Yeah, the scary... scary Stories Part 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, and, and I was totally done with Hardy Boys. Sorry, oh, sorry. Oh. So <laughs> so I got my parents to sign a waiver to allow me in the adults uh, book section, and I ate that up. Oh, my gosh. I have not read more in my life than when I read the books out of the adult book section. I'm talking an 11 or 12-year-old reading the Iliad and the Odyssey all the way to the Dark Tower, when there were only like what three, mm-hmm. two or three books oh, out, the Dark and Tower. and like Star Wars offshoot fiction, um, just basically any book that uh, had a cool looking cover yeah. to an eleven or twelve year old Ed, <laughs> Ed, which was all sci-fi. Yeah. That's why I yeah. started Dune. I read the f- first six books of Dune at the age of twelve.
1: That's incredible.
0: Yeah. If there's a <laughs> dragon or like a
2: giant sandworm on the front of that thing. It's got to be right there. That's it. That's what it is. That's true. I agree. No, but I remember remember there was a point when I was probably 14 years old. I was at my local library, which I had frequented. I was locked my bike up in the front, and I would just run straight back to the – either like fantasy or – I I tried to vary things a little bit, but I was definitely drawn to fantasy and sci-fi and that. So I'd run back there, and I remember there was a point where I was going through the spines of all the books, and I was looking at them, and I was like, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Is there nothing here? And I'm looking at this section, and I'm thinking, (laughs) there's got to be something new. And I I, I started going to the covers that didn't look as cool instead of the awesome dwarf with the big sword or whatever. It was like kind of the the wimpy-looking elf with like a hawk on his shoulder or whatever. (laughs) I can probably find what book that is, and if I can, I'll put it in the show notes. Actually, because I distinctly remember the story, and the story was okay, and it wasn't you know it wasn't the kind of war thing that I really enjoyed, but it was okay. But man, I remember going through that and going to different authors, and and like once you get a once you get a selection where you've tried like Asimov and you've tried Tolkien, and I remember reading the Lord of the Rings out loud to my parents when I was eleven or twelve, like the whole thing. Oh, wow. um, once you've done that, you pull out an author. And I don't know. Like, if you look at it, you kind of start with like a distrust. Like, oh, this isn't going to be as good as the stuff that I read already. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> you get almost a
2: kind of like snobbishness. So, anyway, that that was how I started there, and I, I agree that there is certainly that commonality. There's that link um, in reading, and we're gonna. I think one of my questions is going to address that a little bit. So let's get down to business. What geeky thing from your childhood can you recommend to adults? And for me, the answer is The Chronicles of Pradean by Mm. Lloyd Alexander. One of the best, uh, there are five of them, one of the best sets of books. It's technically young adult fiction. It came out in the 60s, and it's epic. I mean, it needs to be read and appreciated by everyone. I think I have my dad's copy that I stole from him in our library right now. Yeah, I actually have the first book in the series
1: in the trunk of my car. I don't know why. It's just there. Why wouldn't you? Like, what if you I get mean, stranded point.
0: somewhere? You yeah, know? I mean, you yeah, have your carjack, your extra tire, your blanket. Right. And I-
1: I'm all set up for the zombie apocalypse. There you go. Zombies ahead. ahead. Damn it. Lock yourself
2: yeah. in your trunk and you're good to go.
0: <laughs> <Flashlight>.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, chronicles for Dane. Mm. But if I had to recommend one thing for my, my childhood, I would probably say, I don't know, I I I Red Bull thing, go to Red Bull
0: <laughs> all right i got it right here this will be in the in the in the show notes that we'll blog about scumvm.org and then on the right hand side you click compatibility choose any of the games in that list and um you will have an absolute great time i don't care if you spend the first 5 minutes and you're like oh this sucks spend 15 spend 20 minutes imagine this is the only game that you have and you're an 11 year old and you will eventually you'll realize that these are fine wines like literally uh, most of these (laughs) most of the greats are all by lucas arts it's just it's an excellent collection of games that um this emulator supports and a lot of them you can get for really really cheap and some of them are actually free
1: I'm, i'm gonna go ahead and recommend the movie the dark crystal Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, seminal to my nerdiness for sure was the Dark Crystal and the Skeksis, yeah, which, of course, Blizzard has implemented in WoW in the Burning Crusade with the Skeksis, but that's yes. a subject for another day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say watch that. It was a Jim Henson uh, puppet work, but it was definitely not for children, so to speak. It's still worth watching today, so that's what I would commend to adults. That is still worthwhile from my nerd childhood.
2: Yeah, I wanna say just in regards to that movie, from the standpoint of production value, if you look at movies you know, there are some movies that really just don't hold up over time. And that is one of the movies that I think holds up so so well. I yeah, mean it just it looks brand new. If you go back and look at as I have done recently. If you go back and look at Neverending Story, Story, yes. that did not hold up at all. Oh, if come you go on. back and if you go back and look at Dark Crystal.
1: Story.
2: Sing it. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
2: But I did have the biggest crush on the princess. Oh, who movie. didn't? Yeah. She was hot. Yes. With the Orin. All about it. Let's move on to the next sub-question. <laughs> I hope we'll talk about this one a little bit. I'm going to answer it first, and then I'll kick it over to you guys. And I want all of our listeners to think about it, too. We've talked about our roots and how we came into the geek subculture. As an adult, what is it about the geek culture that you identify with the most strongly? What is it that you can point back to and say, I'm a geek and I'm a geek because of this. This is the thing. And for me, the answer to that is something that if you read Penny Arcade, which is a which is a hilarious comic, not for children, but very funny. If you read <laughs> Penny Arcade, um, the writer of that comic goes by the handle, Tycho Brahe, and he says that he considers himself a lifelong learner. And I totally identify with that. And that for me is what, is a common thread throughout the geek culture. Everybody who's in this subculture that we're in will point to the importance of continuing to learn things, the importance of just kind of improving yourself through reading and through all that stuff throughout your lifespan, not just, oh, I'm going to go to college for four years, I'm going to learn what I need to learn, and then I'm going to get a job. You know, the, the geeks that I know are the kind of geeks who read books all the time and are constantly looking at ways to learn new things and expand their horizons and all that. And that is something that's really important to me personally. And that is, I think, the major reason that I love being a geek, because there are so many people around me who I'm confident are in the same boat. They value the same thing that I do in that sense. So what about you guys?
0: I think that uh, I was actually semi-listening to Adam Carolla's podcast, and he had Seth uh, McFarlane on there, creator of Family Guy and, and whatnot. And they were talking about how Seth is just such a genius, and about his roots and all this interesting stuff. It's a great podcast. We'll, we'll link to it. What he was trying, what they were getting at, is that his mind never stops thinking; it never stops imagining. And I, I feel that I'm, I'm not as smart and as a genius as Seth MacFarlane, but my mind needs this output and input of just ideas and thoughts and and when you talk about fantasy, fantasy is fantasy and science fiction and the games we play and the images that we look back, look at in comic books and, and movies, they build something to think about. And that's what we like doing. We like looking at something, whether it be a system or a, an awesome painting or whatever. We like to bring that in as input. And then we also like to be part of the output. And I think that's how I identify, is if anything that I can bring in and bring out that makes my mind work is what I identify as geek culture.
1: No, I agree with that. I think that kind of ties into also my answer, too, which is that, I mean, for today, geeks can identify with a lot of things, but basically it just means uh, to me that it's a subset of the entertainment culture that is separate and distinct from other forms of entertainment culture, but it has to do more with what is possible beyond what is uh, currently out there you know what i mean basically that when you go to you know find something that'll be fun to do whether it be see a movie or play a game or whatnot that you look at things that like you say they stimulate your mind that you get to be a part of the experience not necessarily just a receiver of it but also participants and that the things that you uh, engage in entertaining your mind about have to do with things that are usually less possible in the physical realm and more possible in the imagination realm so that's kind of my answer i like it oh cool Yay! Dave approved. You win. <laughs> Dave approved.
2: Alright, we're going to close this subject out. Thank you guys for sharing your geeky pasts and what you value about geekiness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What I want to talk about next is a post that I recently did for Grayhats.com. We'll have the link in the show notes, but the post was about the Iranian Twitter revolution. What I want to talk about isn't so much the Twitter, although hopefully we'll t- touch on that, but When I was writing the post, I realized that there was this tremendous backstory that had to be communicated before you could get to any of the Twitter stuff, and so if you read the post, you'll see that the first six or seven paragraphs are all about the situation in Iran, how that situation came to be, and what's actually happening, and only the last two or three paragraphs even talk about Twitter, and those paragraphs are not at all what I envisioned when I sat down to start writing the article. What I envisioned was talking about the internet and how it bridges all these boundaries and how it connects people and all this stuff. And I realized that that's not really the story. And what jumped out at me when I was doing my research was that that is actually the only story that major news organizations are telling right now. And I think that's really unfortunate. If you go read the post, you'll find a lot of information. But basically what it boils down to is if you look at CNN.com, if you look at the Time article, they're not talking about the fact that there's rioting in the streets. They're not talking about the fact that allegedly or reportedly dozens of people have died. You know, we're recording this podcast on Sunday, uh, 621. What I'm seeing right now is that on Saturday, several people were killed because they were at protests. That's not being reported on on CNN.com or on time.com. The nature of the situation of the presidential elections, how this all occurred and why people think that the elections were rigged, that's not really being reported on. It's being touched on but the articles really focus on the fact that Twitter is this source of all the information and all this news is coming from Twitter. And isn't it crazy that the Iranian people are using Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's interesting. And I thought it was interesting enough to write a to write an article on. But in reality, I think we really need to have a dialogue about what is going on in Iran. And forget about the Twitter stuff for a minute. That has taken a front seat. And I think that should be kind of more of a backseat thing it should be wired that's writing the articles about how twitter had an effect on the revolution it should be cnn and fox news and time that are writing about the actual revolution and i just don't see that happening have you guys kind of been listening to the news do you have any thoughts on that uh i've been uh, kind of
1: i guess uh ostriching about the story keeping it in the back of my mind but trying not to be too focused on it trying to keep an update on what's going on but not really delving too deep your article you wrote is really good, and anybody who listens to this, you should go to greyhats.com and look at this article. It's it's really well written. It's a really good kind of investigation of some of the basics and also about how uh, things are changing. I, I don't know. I, I find it fascinating. I think it's, uh, in general, the different uh, political parties involved are very similar in ideology, and that, you know, one versus the other may not be better, but the fact that the people of the nation are kind of standing up for their own rights and their own ability to speak for themselves. I think is a major milestone. The fact that technology has played an important role is, first of all, no surprise, but secondly, just incredible. I think it's great. I think it's kind of a new freedom that if previous generations have had, then maybe our history would be very different.
0: All right, you ready for my geek out? Geek out, go. Did you read my comment on, or comment on that post?
2: I did. I must. I must admit that I. I don't know if any any of our listeners write blog posts. I'm sure some of you do, and you may have the same disease that I do. But like, I know that it's going to email me when I get a comment on my post, and I still check that thing five or six (laughs) times a day. (laughs) But yes, so yes, I did read your comment. Go ahead. Why don't you um, Why don't you give us a brief
0: summary of what your comment was about? I will get into that, but I have to pre I have to set this up a little bit, or set myself up a little bit. I've been kind of following the Iranian thing uh, mainly because of the technology aspect. It really fascinates me. How I feel morally about the situation, everyone's going to have to deal with that themselves. But the thing that really excites me is is that the uh, flow of information is like Jay you said. It's not surprising at all that information is available and flowing to a nation that has so much censorship. But it's so exciting to me. That it's yeah. finally happening, and I mean, um, we have T- Tiananmen Square. Uh, I don't know how many years it just—the anniversary was just a few weeks ago. That was what twenty something years ago. I want to say twenty-five years ago. Back then, when that kind of stuff was happening, we're they're, lucky they're, to
1: get that photograph.
0: Exactly, we're lucky to get that photo. We're lucky to know what happened that day. To have Iranians feel that they are their own rights are being ignored enough to go out into the street and to protest. I really feel that the movement that has happened over the last week would not have been entirely possible if it wasn't for the free flowing of information, which just leads to this much larger picture of being able to know anything at any time. When people talk to me about this and that. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what this means. I don't know how to do that. I don't understand why they don't, why they're talking to me. They could go to their computer, type in google.com, type in wiki, wikipedia.org, and find much more than I could ever answer to them. And to have that information at every single person's fingertips, the implications are are astounding because now we're able to make informed decisions and informed moral decisions based off of all of the facts and that's amazing because like rewind to the american revolution from britain all they knew all those farmers and shopkeeps that were picking up rifles knew was that they were being taxed and they didn't have all the information but they did it anyways imagine how fast revolution against dictatorship would would happen if everyone in our history had had the free flow of information like they do today, and as we come together, it's like hive mind with our own ego—that's a Latin term for self, for your soul, almost—still intact. And it's just—it's kind of, kind of amazing. And uh, it's really spelled out in this anime called *Ghost in the Shell*, which it has excellent action and storytelling. But um, it also touches on the net mentality but yeah that's that's my geek out on this uh twitter thing it's not in of itself so awesome it's more of path the road was there but it was like a gravel road and someone just made it a roman road so yeah
1: the other the other detail with this that is really really cool is these sort of student uprisings protests to the injustice of the iranian um, mullahs and their theocracy has happened before but Because of, you know, the lack of technology, I would say, or because the lack of the ability for the foreign media to access it and kind of stimulate the minds of the world, nothing was made of it. I mean, in the past, what happened is the students would rise up and say, you know, it's time for the stand. It's time for us to have a a free nation. And then they would wait for the leaders of free nations to make their statements and their comments. And in the current situation, we have a leader of uh, the United States who's kind of basically said... And they're kind of, sort of, nothing really strong or a strong endorsement of uh, the systems themselves. But because of Twitter, in this case, because of technology, the people have been able to see that the world is sympathizing, that the world is on their side. In the past, uh, people would look to nations to see if the world was on their side. And now it's kind of been isolated down to the individuals because of technology. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, and the
2: other thing is that they're able to use this as a tool to organize in a way that they never had tools before. It's a lot harder to organize anything if you're talking by word of mouth, if you're trying to get word spread by sending someone here and there. And you don't know, especially when you're running an insurgency, you don't know where the other insurgents are. Stealth is your bread and butter, you know. You're a, you're a rogue class. You're hiding in the shadows. So being able to organize that without having any centralized point of communication, totally decentralizing the movement is powerful. And again, I'm not going to try to put any kind of morality on it. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. No matter what, whether they are heroes or guerrilla warriors harassing the people, they are using a technology in a powerful way. And we are partly responsible for that. Twitter invented this technology, you know the creators of Twitter, I don't know their names, but we'll have a link to twitter.com and you can check it out, invented this technology, and there are other technologies like it out there, and there are other websites like it out there, but it is because of our subculture, tying this back into the geek thing, it is because of our subculture, and because of the way that we grow, and the way that we desire to communicate, that these things exist, you know, in a world without geeks, you wouldn't have Twitter, you wouldn't have Facebook, even. And that's why I get so mad when the jocks come on and
1: <laughs> steal Facebook. Yeah, Facebook is cool, Kid Central now. I barely look at it. <laughs> well, all I
0: have to say is I'm ecstatic that I don't have to go to my high school friends' MySpace pages anymore. At least they're on Facebook.
1: Oh, God. I can count the number of times I've been to MySpace on one hand, uh, you know, even if I've lost three fingers. So I'm glad I don't have any reason to go there ever again. Agreed. Agreed. All right. I would like to move All on. All right. Let's move on. Let's let's get another topic in here and then wrap it up. Okay. So
2: we're going to talk a little bit about movies. And what we're going to talk about stems from an experience that I had just last night. I was watching Benjamin Button while we were running Naxxramas. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Benjamin Button, it is the story of a man who is born old and ages
0: in reverse. I'm falling asleep already.
2: And I knew it was a drama. And it has Brad... Is it Brad Pitt? Yeah. It is Brad Pitt. Is it Brad? It generic, is. Generic, handsome Hollywood guys. I knew it was a drama, so I knew going into it that I was in for probably some boredom, but it had the sci fi element to it where he was aging backwards. And I was like, okay, maybe they'll do something interesting with that. Maybe there will be some redeeming factor here. I ended up watching it. I want to throw out a spoiler warning here because I am going to talk a little bit about how the movie ends. So fast forward a couple minutes if you don't want to hear that.
0: What, that he gets younger? <laughs> spoiler! <laughs> he does get younger. <laughs>
2: And one of the things in this movie is he's he's getting younger and he's with a woman who's aging normally and they're in love. And they've been in love since they were little kids. And she wants to have a baby. They end up having this kid and he ends up leaving because he doesn't want the kid to grow up with a father who's getting younger. So it's this absolutely heart-wrenching scene. And then after that, it's just all downhill. There's heart-wrenching scene after heart-wrenching scene after heart-wrenching scene until the end where he dies and then she dies and that's it. And I decided... Screw dramas. I don't need that in my life. There's absolutely no reason for me to watch a movie where a guy, a father, has to leave his child and go off and live a life without her and then comes back and regrets it and then gets dementia and then dies as a
0: baby.
2: (laughs) I'm going to partially agree with you. I I think you should fully agree with me. That is horrible. And not only that, but they had this interesting idea about a guy aging backwards, and they did absolutely nothing with it. They just told a stupid, depressing story. That was the only the only differentiating factor was that when he died of old age, he was a baby. Nobody cares. Oh, and they used it as a plot device for how he could ruin his relationship with his girlfriend and daughter.
0: Well, can I sidestep you? and um, give a little bit of a, a Film Geeks take, because I have a feeling that we're going to get a little bit of backlash. I have this friend who is like Film Geek Central, and I've actually uh, I've learned a lot, and of what I've learned, half of it is how to deal with Film Geek Central people, and the other half of it is actually good movie kind of, oh, oh yeah, that, okay, stuff that I didn't understand before. And I think one of one of the things that I've learned from films is that a lot of the filmmakers want to make you feel. Now, the drama that the Benjamin Button drama, I agree, that's just like that's like overkill feel. It's like instead of just, you know, shooting the guy in the head, he took <laughs> out like an MG forty two and just t- 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 destroyed your body with dramatic feelings of disparity and no hope. With and, no payoff. Yeah, with no payoff at the end. It was like, okay, he died. You're done. Um, one of the films that I feel that kind of wrenches your heart out, but in like a good way, and maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman is the only one that's able to do this for me. I'm totally going to butcher this title. Cinecdote New York, I believe. It's a film about a theater artist played by Philip Seymour, and he gets a genius grant to do his theater, but he goes through all this stuff and he's kind of crazy. The film, it really tears at you, but it doesn't in a way that is like, after finishing the movie, I felt like I had just walked out of the Getty Center. If, Hmm. I I don't know how else to explain that. And so I feel that there are a lot of movies like Benjamin Button that are like, okay, we need to make $100 million dollars let's get Brad Pitt
1: <laughs>
0: some hot chick and make a movie that makes people cry and maybe laugh a little and make 100 million dollars nope.
2: there's no laughing no laughing about maybe no laughs. Laughs. <laughs>, laughs well if you want to win the academy award you can't have that's any true. laughter that's that's the rule what i was kind of saying to you guys earlier was I enjoy sci-fi movies and I enjoy fantasy movies because they they have a lot of archetypes. They have a hero that you can get behind and root for. They will put that hero in dangerous situations so that you become emotionally invested in the hero. And ultimately, if it's what we consider a good movie, the hero is going to triumph. And when the hero does triumph, you feel like you have won and you feel like good in general has prevailed. You know, you, you don't walk out of Benjamin Button feeling like... You could be a a super agent or whatever like you do when you walk out of Mission Impossible 3. You don't have that stride like, oh, yeah, man, the good spies always win, and there's some action, and there's this cool stuff, and and the bad guys are going to lose no matter what. You just feel depressed like, yeah, that's true. We are going to die eventually. Everybody's going to get dementia and scream at their friends and forget that they had (laughs) breakfast and be pissed off. Like, why would I put myself through that? So I've decided from now on for me, action, adventure, sci-fi – Comedy, romantic comedy, all that's fine. Drama. How
0: does the wife feel you know? about that? I think that's the kicker.
2: I don't really care. <laughs> She's going to listen to this and I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. But, I mean, <laughs> she can watch whatever she wants as long as I can not pay attention to it. Open the laptop. Exactly.
1: <laughs> no, I, which I, I think get
2: you do anyway. Which I do.
1: You're becoming my parents. I am becoming your parents? Yeah, my mom. Yeah. Dude, you have no idea. My mom will watch any movie that's like you know, dramatic and difficult to watch because she doesn't go watch movies for that purpose. That's hilarious. That's exactly what my dad says. He says, if I want to be depressed, I'll watch the news. That's actually kind of a good point. No, I see. I get what you're saying, though, too, because I don't want to watch... Like, the movies I won't watch, besides really bad summer action flicks like Transformers, uh, the movies I I won't watch... watch, Yeah. uh, ...are the movies that are, like, inspirational. Like, I can't stand that crap. Like, I will not watch... For example, uh, Ray, the film about Ray Charles, I refuse to watch that because it's just going to be wonderful and uh, uplifting and inspirational about oh, – I just don't care. Like I do not care. And so there are lots of movies like that that I won't watch. Like some lady today was trying to talk me into watching Up, and I'm like I heard you cry when you watch that movie because it makes you feel good about life but also sad. And I'm like I just have no desire to watch a movie like that. <laughs> like, uh, I'll watch the dramas, you know, the ones that are, ooh, that was interesting, and I might not enjoy it as much as I used to. I'm finding I'm finding that that is true for me, Dave, as well. That's good. Uh, is that those kind of – like, I'm trying to think of a good example of a film that was, you know, emotionally devastating, but I enjoyed because it was special – like traffic, right? That movie was emotionally devastating, like a nuclear weapon in your heart, basically. Um, <laughs> and I, I, at the end of watching it, I liked it because it was it really achieved the "I want to make you feel" objective. But I, I will never watch that movie again. <laughs> you know, I'll be damned if I watch that movie again.
2: But you know, there, there's there's a flip side to that, and I'm going to cite the movie Crash.
0: Uh, couldn't That's exactly it. what emotional. I was thinking.
2: Crash is an excellent movie. It it does have that drama feel, but at the end of it, you're not left with the sense that everything is just crap and you might as well kill yourself now so you can avoid all the pain that the world has in store for you. You're left with the sense that there's this greater relationship between all men and we have the ability to affect that. And so you can have a drama that ends with a positive message that's still a sad movie, but that has high points and that communicates a message that's good.
0: I totally see where you're coming from. There are a percentage of movies that are just a waste of time because, as geeks, we kind of understand that something with no hope in the end is not what we like. I think that's what we need. We need but some really kind of. But I really like
1: The Empire Strikes Back.
0: there's hope at the end. He gets his hand back.
1: Come yeah, on. Yeah, that's not real hope, though. That
2: last scene where he's sitting there on the windowsill.
1: Yeah, the still of space. The window seat
0: <laughs> of the universe, <laughs> yes. So, sorry, R- Rev, what were you saying? All I'm saying is there was a third one. So. <laughs> <laughs> so...
2: And that, And again, that's why we love Star Wars. That's why we love movies like that, because they have heroes. They have someone you can get behind. That person is going to prevail ultimately. They're going to go through trials. Nobody was expecting Luke to lose a hand. The first time you see that, his hand gets cut off. You're like, oh man, no. that, that sucks. You can feel it, you know. But then at the end, he comes back and he's dressed all in black and he's totally awesome A and badass. whoops yeah. on everybody. He does, and that is satisfying.
0: I agree. Yeah, and uh, back to the um, beating of the dead horse, Benjamin Button. The the trailers. I haven't watched the movie, but I'll just take your word for it. Don't. Yeah. Um, you're not Lavar Burton, so. Um, <laughs> The trailers were like all happy, like some old little man, baby dancing. <laughs> Yay! Brad Pitt's on a motorcycle. He's in a, he totally a relationship right. with a woman. <laughs> Watch this movie. And then you're telling me about this depressing story about this dude that walks out on his kid. It's... That's... Uh, That's like some writer's like... uh I'm emo. I'm going to write a well, story.
2: You know what it is? And I, as a writer, I think I'm allowed to say that writers... And not, not that I'm a professional, but I I, <laughs> I write enough and study writing enough to know how to tell a story. And as a writer, I think I'm able... I'm uniquely positioned to say that a lot of writers are incredibly pretentious, and they get jaded, and they think that the only good story, the only story that's worth telling, is the stories that are, are real, and that they're hard to take, and all this. And I think that idea is just so horrible you know it's it's such a waste of humanity to only talk about the darkest parts
1: i think that's a good point i will give you cred
0: even and and going to like pulp fiction or any of quentin tarantino's stuff it's often very very dark and he's got some really heavy things in there especially arrogant bastards i just watched a, a clip of it and but at the same time usually there's some higher almost calling to these guys. There is, like, I mean, like Samuel L. Jackson, is crazy, like, I'm going to go wander the deserts uh, fighting behind. (laughs) I'm
1: going to walk the earth.
2: Exactly. Kane in Kung Fu. Oh. See, David Carradine is from Kung Fu. Sad face.
0: Anyways, even in those movies that are totally part of geek culture, in my opinion, Um, you have this pariah kind of like – I mean a lot of stuff we read in in our own fiction, especially Dark Tower where Mm. uh, – let's – okay, huge spoiler. If you haven't read Dark Uh, Tower –
1: Wait, the final book is the only one I'm on. Don't ruin it.
0: No, no, no. This is the first book. Oh, that's fine. I'm going to totally drop this on you. Read the Dark Tower. Just if you haven't stopped the podcast, go read Dark Tower. It's only like, what, three 150 pages. Mm-hmm. And then come back and finish and finish All right. When he lets Jake fall in the first book, you're oh, thinking, man. what? Seriously? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the feeling I get from like Quentin Tarantino's movies. But they they're still it's still like oh, but he's Roland. He's the gunslinger. He has to do this. Of course he had to let Jake fall. So I don't know. I think that I think a lot of it is is this depressing like oh the world is ending we're all dying which is kind of uh it, it keeps coming up in in these video game uh blogs that i read about they they're asking the designers um Ah, you made Fallout 3. It was post-apocalyptic. Do you think that that's because of the economy that it did well? <laughs> is, it, is, is American tired of of these... Happy games. Of, yeah, do they need happy <laughs> games now? Do you uh, think that was only successful because things were down? Blah, blah. I don't think that's not... Watch
1: hello, game yeah. over, continue.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't for, think... We're crying out loud. <laughs> I I don't think that having a depressing premise is at all, like, it may have some, like, it may garner some extra interest from the general populace, but in general, all games we have have, like, a general pariah, kind of hero, and if we don't have that in our movies, then... um, it's just out the door. I think for all of us, uh, it's just like, all right. Well, I'm not going to watch that movie again. And a lot of our authors even uh, do. St- let me, Stephen King and The Mist, um, lame. All right. We love Stephen King, mm-hmm. but The Mist, seriously, lame. Okay. Just don't watch that movie. Don't read right. the short story.
1: All right, <laughs> won't do either. All right, Jay. Yo. Did you have any closing thoughts on this subject? Really briefly, I understand what you're saying about the movies in general. A sub-point while we're on the topic of movies, Transformers came out. I'm probably going to see it because of a so- social obligation in which I've been asked to go with another couple to go see it. Uh, I previously stated the only situation in which I would watch that movie is with my earbuds in, listening to music really loud, so I didn't have to pay attention to any kind of story or dialogue, which I'm sure there will be neither of anyways. Um, <laughs> I just want to watch robots fight. Is there anything wrong with that? Do you have to have people talking? Can't we all just agree that huge robots knocking crap down and fighting is enough of a film? Let's just turn but
0: off the But it's done well in, like, Iron Man. Uh,
1: no, but it, it's not in Transformers. That's my point.
0: Right. I, all I'm saying is Transformers is not geeky. It's like Xbox retro. football
2: yeah, there's this huge movement. I, I think there's this huge movement right now to resurrect the cartoons of the 80s. I mean, we see that in G.I. Joe. We see that in Transformers. Oh.
1: G.I. Joe looks like it's going to be the worst thing ever.
2: Yes. We, we certainly saw that in...
1: Well, I mean, the Mortal
2: Kombat movie, that was more of a video game. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Horrible. Oh! Uh, the, now, The comic be careful. Book? Comic books Excellent. are amazing. Absolutely amazing, yes. But the, the movie... movie not oh no, bird. Mr.
1: Kool-Aid Man. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs>
2: well, okay, so I I think my point was, you know, the, this reaching back to try to find that spark of sentimentality in people to sell them a mediocre film. Ugh. Is mediocre, is really I disappointing and it's indicative of Hollywood in general, which is that they're And you said dick. They're out of ideas. I've always said that movies try to sell to the lowest common denominator, which means inherently that they're going to sacrifice quality, and they're going to they're try to pack in as much, whatever, whatever it is that people that don't like quality like, as much of that as possible. Mm. Um, and, and I think, too, they assume that people are a little bit stupid and can't, can't
0: get it. I risk sounding like a pretentious jerk, but I think there's a, a lot. I think that it's true. I mean, the lowest common denominator on television are these dramas of reality that isn't really reality. <laughs> and that is the defining factor of a lot of our highest-rated television shows. And that's why the movies work so well.
2: All right. Well, it's depressing. I think we can all agree that it's depressing. Um, we want to see some more geeky Let's movies. Let's end on a depressing note. Yes, let's end on a depressing note, and then we will be in keeping. Maybe we'll get syndicated by some big Hollywood movie studio. Whee! I hope not. I'm going to ask a closing question. My closing question is, what is your favorite geeky movie of the last decade? Oh.
1: That's not even a question, though.
2: Of the
0: last decade?
1: Lord of the Rings. Not even in contention.
0: All right. Rev? I'm trying to find a counterpoint.
1: No, there is none, my friend. You just need to accept the fact that (laughs) Lord of the Rings is the penultimate geek creation and its embodiment in film was nothing but a incredible success. The story, perfect in its wholeness. The movie, perfect in its execution. So do you take them all as one film then? I I think you have to, but even if I had to take one of them, then I would still take one of them.
0: You know, I'm going to go out a limb and say that um, in the top five, the uh, first Matrix is certainly worthy.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I don't think it beats out Lord of the Rings, but I would say that The Matrix was an, an excellent example of a geeky movie that didn't worry about the audiences being able to keep up. You know, it's not—it's not as if they had an overly complicated storyline, but they made no bones about the storyline and they just went with it. And I think that was good. I think it was well executed. It's too bad they never made a sequel to it. You
0: know? Yeah. Oh well. What can oh, do? and uh, and Doom too, right? Doom. <laughs>
1: Oh God, I love Doom! I think Best I just threw open my
2: mouth a little bit. Did you? A little taste like it. Good. Okay, we are going to finish this episode of Borked. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. You can I'll never say. That. You can find us on the web at grayhats.com. That's g-r-e-y hats.com. Scroll down to the Borked podcast show notes. You'll see those in there. On the right hand side, you can click on the podcasting category to see all the. Uh, posts under podcasting. You can find Dave Eagle on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash eagle. You can find Jay on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash tesson. That's T-E-S-S-O-N. And you can find Rev on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash revoked. Feel free to email us at we at borkedproductions.com.
1: And that's we as in W-E not as in the Nintendo Entertainment System.
2: Correct. As just... Imagine the women's entertainment network.
1: Oh God.
2: Anyway, it's been a blast recording a long
0: time original film.
2: <laughs> it's been a blast recording episode two. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as we have enjoyed making it. This is us signing off. Until next week, stay nerdy.
1: Jabroni okay.
0: Why do you sound like your dog eyed? Am I sad? You are, you're like, I'm your
2: Hello and welcome to borg oh, Wait, some... stop. <laughs> oh, God. God. Oh. I was going so well, too. Phone. You're going well. Are you ready now, for reals? I'm ready. All right.
0: Thriller!
2: thriller. <laughs> 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 that's what I said earlier. Did you for it's the in. mic check? That's impressive. I did. Yep. I would never and say any of that.
1: That's what he said.
2: That is what, (laughs) that is in fact what he said.